We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to Watch with Jen this week, we have my very talented friend and an official and very popular friend of the show. William Boyle is the acclaimed novelist behind such titles as Gravesend, The Lonely Witness, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, City of Margins, and Shoot the Moonlight Out. In addition to crafting these wonderfully humanistic, Lumet-like, character-driven ensemble crime epics, Bill is quite a pop culture buff and one hell of a good movie trivia game player as well. Bill, thank you so much for being here again. I had so much fun talking about Jennifer Jason Lee with you at the start of the summer, and I'm so looking forward to today's discussion. But first, I would love to know what's new. What have you been up to lately? Thanks, Jen. It's uh, always always great to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. And um, feels like a million years since we did that Jennifer yeah. Jason Lee episode. I can't believe that was this year. Um, yeah, things have been going good. I've just been working on, uh, working on the new book and, um, watching a lot of movies and reading a lot and, you know, kind of listening to a lot of music, all the stuff I love to do, hanging out with my family. Yeah, that's that's been about, that's been about it. So it's been, it's been good. Been on a pretty good run of, of, uh, getting, getting to do all that stuff. Which is very cool. And you're one of those writers who likes to work first thing in the morning, if memory serves. I do, yeah. I I, especially when I'm working on a novel, I kind of feel like I I get up at like 4:45 or so and try to get to work at five. And yeah, I I tend to get a lot done from like five to eight. That's my best. That's my best time if I can if I can make it work. You know, yeah, which, I, which I've been able to do lately, which is uh, I always kind of feel better when I have that behind me in the morning and mm-hmm. I can do other things and kind of have that feeling of having accomplished something that I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, you must be running on like very little sleep or do you nap? I mean, how are you? How are you functioning? Bill? Uh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, no, I sleep OK. I've been actually sleeping 
better lately for the first time in a long time. So I, I, you know, if I get six or seven hours, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, which which I've, I've been getting lately. Um, Cause I, I don't mean, I do sometimes pay for it in the afternoon because I have, I have a, I'm an early morning person and I'm a late night person, which is a bad combination. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really bad combination because usually I get sometime in the afternoon, I just totally lose steam. And, uh, you know, I either, if I'm home and I have nothing going on, maybe I could take a nap for a little while. Otherwise, I just, you know, fight it with coffee. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I know you've been teaching film courses and writing your great streaming recommendation column. So which movies have you been revisiting lately? Let's give our listeners here a couple of your stellar recommendations. Oh, geez. Um, so many. I mean, obviously, I've been rewatching John Sayles movies, uh, which we'll which we'll get to. Um, yes. And other than that, I, um, I watched um, Alan Rudolph's uh, Remember My Name. Oh, rewatch that this week yeah one of, one of my favorites of his and that's popped up I'm always kind of these days it seems like I'm always singing the praises of Tubi because there's just so much stuff that pops up on there that's not available anywhere else and it was cool to see remember my name um show up there because you can't no. see that really anywhere unless it shows up on TCM or you live in a city where there's like a screening of it um so I've yeah. been kind of talking about that one a lot this week and trying to you know tell people who who might not have seen it or might be looking for a way to see it to uh bet us there so that that was a big one yeah absolutely Uh, tubi is good i have the hardest time navigating tubi oh it's yeah it's it's like a nightmare to navigate so i like knowing what's there or else doing a search and like clicking into it otherwise yeah I can't find a thing in Tubi. So they need to work on that navigation, but otherwise yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the way I tend to find stuff on there is just that like I'll search for a director, like, and I'll say, holy shit, like there's nine <laughs> John Sales. There's like, there's eight or nine John Sales movies on there right now, which many of them are not streaming anywhere else. No. Or, you know, uh, are, are not super available. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I'll, same same thing goes for Abel Ferrara. There's like you know, um, there's often a bunch of Abel Ferrara movies available there that yeah. aren't other places. So, and then yeah, it, it is it is kind of a wild card finding stuff on there, but it's amazing how much stuff is is buried on there. Yeah, hundred um, percent. For a while, it was like the only place you could find Red Rock West for a little bit. Yeah, yeah it was Jackknife right. with Robert De Niro. It was like the only yeah. spot. It was strange. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a and um, you know, it's just like I, I pay for a bunch of other streaming services, and I wind up watching Tubi <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of the time. It feels like so. Yeah, remember my name is on there, and that's that's definitely a uh, a favorite of mine. What else have I watched lately, uh, other than other than sales? Um, I watched that. Um, I'm my French is awful, but you know, Petite Maman, the new Celine. Yama, is that how you say her name? I don't know. <laughs> Movie? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire, so I um, was excited about that and finally watched that this week and thought it was amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. Other than that, it's been a lot of, a lot of you know, I've, I go on runs definitely with directors where I feel like rewatching everything. And, and so I've been rewatching basically all of 
you know, all of sales, all of Alan Rudolph, all of Walter Hill and a bunch yeah. of other directors. I also yeah. watched, um, in the, in the cinema studies class, I'm, uh, teaching this semester, we watched, uh, Fargo this week, which, um, I hadn't watched in, you know, in a while. Yeah. I, I feel like I've loved it forever, but I also still somehow kind of underrate it in the Coen brothers filmography and just kind of blown away by it all over again this week. And, Kids I had a similar experience. Yeah, I think probably it was almost too close to home when I saw it back in Minnesota right, in the yeah. 90s. <laughs> yeah, um, we were kind of thinking, oh, they're making fun of certain um, car dealerships yeah. or names. And we we're like, we know who that is. And so it was a little too close for comfort in places. I mean, we liked the movie. It was great. But I just rewatched it a couple of years ago when I wrote something about uh, Francis McDormand. And I was absolutely blown away by it and just how intricate it is and how quiet the movie is in places. I think, you know, it's just so powerful. And, you know, you think about it as being, oh, it's a little jokey. It's a dark, devastating film. And yeah. Oh, it really is. Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, It's, you know, I mean, I think sometimes I'm a little, to my detriment, a little too kind of hype averse. And, and so, yeah, I think both both Fargo, <laughs> Fargo and No Country for Old Men. I think because those are kind of the two most popular Coen Brothers movies. I think, or the two most well received, or the two most lauded, or whatever. I always kind of push them down a little <laughs> in my Coen Brothers rankings. But they're both so so brilliant, and uh, and yeah, they deserve you know they deserve that attention. They're just I mean I love I love their whole filmography. So it's yeah. tough to tough to kind of you know try to rank in any way i know it's almost impossible well an idea that's been in the works for i think a year now i believe uh, yeah today we're doing it we're taking a break from our frequent character actor coverage to instead discuss a director who's not only also an actor but one uniquely focused on the craft in his character centric tales as well a humanistic sociologist of sorts with both a background in theater as well as a passion for storytelling, which began for him as a voracious, curious reader of novels at the age of nine. John Sales eventually wrote and sold stories in the 1970s, eventually graduating to screenplays, which were penned first for Roger Corman and then others. For several decades, working as a successful script doctor and writer for hire as fast as he is efficient, Sales was inspired by John Cassavetes and others to work for others, but then develop and direct his own passion projects, even earning a MacArthur Genius Grant in the early 1980s, which gave him a guaranteed income of, I believe it was 32000 for five years. Selecting just five titles to focus on today, including May Tuan, Eight Men Out, City of Hope, Lone Star and Limbo. Well, we'll tackle each film in a moment and I'm sure reference and discuss several others along the way because how can you not? It's probably best to start with the man himself. So Bill, talk to me about John Sales when you first became a fan and what you think it is that makes his work so unique. Oh man, I've been trying to think about this and almost certainly the first John Sayles movie I saw was Eight Men Out um, because, you know, I was a kid obsessed with baseball and would have watched, 
you know, I mean, that probably came out when I was 10 ish um, mm -hmm. or so. So I would have seen, you know, basically any, any baseball movie at that point, but eight men out immediately became, you know, maybe my favorite other than, I don't know, bad news bears. Um, eight men out was, you know, as a kid, my, my, one of my go-to baseball movies. So I, I appreciated it uh, that way first before I ever really was a fan of John Sayles. I, you know, it took me probably a few years after that, once I started getting into movies more seriously to, to kind of make the, the connection that, you know, Oh, I've, I've watched now I've watched this other movie by this guy. And I, I think I like him as a director and a writer. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what my what my second sales movie would have been. Probably, I, I don't think I saw City of Hope right when it came out. Um, I think probably Passion Fish would have been the next one I saw and loved and, and would have been the one that kind of, you know, time to me really getting into movies and really starting to kind of follow directors. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, um, and then Lone Star was, Lone Star came out when I was, 17 18 and, and really kind of solidified solidified that so um and then i you know i went back and started reading some of his fiction and and catching up on any any movies of his that i had missed and that's when i you know would have seen Tuan and uh city of hope and uh brother from another planet and you know just everything that that maybe it's you i mean there's so many that i came to a little later that um i love you know it's just a, it's an incredible filmography um and just an incredible you know career across across the arts not just not just the films um and i think i also as a kid i mean once i started watching a few of his films i think one of the things that blew me away was just the at first thinking he never knew where he was going to go. There was an insane kind of diversity of topics that, um, that, you know, in retrospect, there's, I think a through line in all of his work, uh, yeah. pretty clear, pretty clear through line, but I don't think I've probably recognized that as a kid. I was just like, Oh, this guy can make, you know, a, a movie about the black socks and then a movie about, you know, like the characters in Passion Fish, kind of like a, a, a yeah. melodrama, and then a you know a murder mystery set in Texas. I mean, you just never kind mm -hmm. of could anticipate what the next move was going to be. And I love, I love that. And I think as I got you know smarter about watching stuff, I recognized how much of a vision he had actually, and how much all of these stories, no matter how different they seem, were kind of similar in some ways, or had you know definitely kind of uh were reflective of his his obsessive obsessions and concerns and stuff so um yeah i mean yeah. he's one of my favorites he's he's uh had a huge you know impact on me as as you know storyteller he's like like robert altman and Sidney lamette like one of the one of the main people who i grew up admiring this kind of ensemble storytelling and when i started to sit down not to make it about myself but when i started to sit down and try to write novels and you know was looking at the stuff that had really impacted me it was you know it was altman sales yeah you know lamette and um so there's a huge you know huge 
debt of gratitude um, that I own for that stuff. I mean, City of Hope, which we'll talk about, I think was uh, especially kind of once I saw that, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to write something like that. You know, I remember yeah. feeling that distinctly. Yeah, I think actually May Tuan might have been my first John Sayles movie uh, that I remember. I, I might have seen Eight Men Out, but I actually don't remember that experience. But in um, seventh or eighth grade, I when I went over to Catholic school just for like a year and a half there in middle school, we had a really good history teacher who loved using film and especially oh, wow. independent film and classic film to kind of bring these lessons to life. He showed us like all quiet on the Western front, like the, the really old version. And um, he showed us May Tuan. And I do remember seeing this and him kind of then making the lesson about unions and what this all meant. And wow. yeah, he was a really great teacher. When I think back on the best teachers I ever had, uh, Jim Morgan, my history teacher, is right there at the top. And oh, that's incredible. this was, yeah, a really big experience but it had been a long time since I had seen it probably since then um that I decided for this I, I really wanted to revisit it I'm so glad I did I think then it was probably passion fish for sure I know I saw around the time I had my first spine surgery also secret of Rhone inish because I remember yeah, I love that one yeah yeah I remember Roger Ebert kind of being like a broken record about that movie for a while and also just you know all of the ads magical realism was kind of a big thing there in the early 90s like we were getting with like water for chocolate and some of these movies coming out and so I remember it really captured my imagination uh, I just revisited that. Uh, that kind of actually inspired us to finally do this episode because it was on the Criterion channel and it was yeah. going to leave. And it was just stunning. And so I tweeted about it or posted and, and you kind of latched on and it was like, let's do this episode. So I was very excited yeah. to do that. Yeah. So I think um, May Chuan, Secret Ronin-ish and Passion Fish were probably my first few that made an impact and then eventually you know starting to go back and revisit the ones that I didn't even know about like baby it's you is terrific yeah Um, yeah just stellar filmmaking yeah and I for I I, when I was talking earlier of course I skipped over secret of um, Ronin-ish which I I love too and I, I mean I think I remember also just you know that one being in the mix just again a testament to his range um, and just you know in the 90s you know there were a lot of filmmakers I was you know drawn to and was really responding to but uh, you know there weren't a lot of filmmakers who who exhibited that sort of range you know I mean they're usually they were kind of making the mm-hmm. same sorts of films and and you never knew what you were going to get with sales really um which was was um certainly something that, that appealed to me you know i mean um so yeah, that, yeah. I, that was such a such a formative time for me and you know his his presence is as big as you know the coen brothers or, or whoever else i was kind of really you know locked into in, in those those years yeah hundred percent. Well, kicking things off, I'm going to turn it over to Bill to lead us into our first film, Meituan. Okay, so um, 
Apparently, Meituan uh, derives somewhat from from Sales's novel Union Dues, um, mm-hmm. which I read a long time ago. But I I can't really. I mean, the novel's not the basis for okay for Meituan, but there's there's you know I think it maybe is just one of the kind of stories he um, got attracted to while he was doing research for that book. Anyway, so Meituan is uh, set in Meituan. West Virginia in the 1920s, um, newly unionized miners clash with the owners of the tyrannical Stone Mountain Coal Company. Organizer Joe Kenahan, Chris Cooper, in his feature mm-hmm. debut, comes to comes to town to help the union members along in their fight. Um, though he's a pacifist and pushes against their calls for violence, Will Oldham, who is a you know later it blew my mind when I was in college and got really into Will Oldham's music and Palace music and Bonnie Prince Billy, um, blew my mind that he was the kid in Meituan. Um and he he also went on obviously to star in Kelly Reichert's Old Joy and some other films. Uh, also, I think it's this is his major acting debut. It's a a movie of a lot a lot of first Chris Cooper. Yeah. Mary McDonald's first major movie, Will Oldham's first major movie. Um, anyway, Will Oldham stars as uh, Danny Radner, the son of Mary McDonald's Edna, who runs the rooming house where Kenahan is staying. Um, and then there's James Earl Jones, who plays Fuclose Johnson, one of the black miners brought in from Alabama as scabs and sent down to the mines alongside some recently arrived Italian immigrants also functioning as scabs. Mm-hmm. Kevin Ty and Gordon Clapp play Baldwin agents sent to town to stir up trub- trouble. Um, sales regular David Strathairn, um, who's in all of the movies I think we'll talk about today, plays yeah. police chief Smiling Sid Hatfield, um, who refuses to bow down to the coal company. Mix of historical figures and kind of fictional composite characters. Um, sales documents a powder keg situation that culminates in one of the most violent incidents in the struggle of American labor. Though it plays somewhat as a gunfight Western, as sales calls it, ending with a bloody shootout. He bucks convention by making the code hero a pacifist. Um, yeah, I liked that and, idea. And yeah, so uh, what matters, but what matters most in the in the midst of this never-ending cycle of violence and degradation is how Kenahan's example impacts Danny and the others. So I just wanted to, you know, to intro it to kind of write that little um, script up. But um, you know, it's a movie that I, I, I can't remember where I saw it in, in you know, the line of kind of um, when I was first kind of, you know, digging into sales. Um, probably in the mid nineties sometime, but yeah. Um, it, yeah, totally, you know, blew me away then. And, and I got the Criterion, um, Blu-ray when it came out a few years ago, I want to say, and watch, rewatched it then. And then, you know, rewatched it this week. And, um, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a brilliant movie and, um, sales is book about it. Um, thinking in pictures is just this, you know, if you're interested, if anybody is interested in, writing films or making films i think it's uh you know one of the most indispensable books i've ever read about wow. about the whole process so it's called thinking in pictures did i say that already yeah um so it's really gives you a lot of insight into this whole process it also includes the the full script for for the movie 
Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, about that because I saw that you were reading that. Uh, Bill and I are so nerdy that we kind of uh, geeked out on research material. He got that. I picked up sales on sales and yeah, I got that one too. Yep, we have our books here. <laughs> we are <laughs> twins. Yes, yeah. The, <laughs> the film is um, incredible, and one thing that's so I think it shows that he was starting to get even more epic in scope as a filmmaker. I mean, here you have Haskell Wexler, which isn't yeah absolutely you know one of our greatest cinematographers and i heard they called him up and they're like we can't even give you remotely your salary and he just said whatever you need and haskell came out there he said something like he usually gets paid four times as much as he was getting on may chuan but he said he's having four times as much fun and then of course he came back for secret of Rome inish and uh so that was a good um creative partnership that kind of got struck on this film uh watching it again i was thinking about uh, paul thomas anderson and there will be blood and maybe you know a little bit if he was inspired they kind of remove primary colors um to make sure that they're staying with the, the sort of the coal look just like in there will be blood you've got the oil look a lot of blacks and browns and um you know and this cast oh my goodness you know it's so important too in the scheme of things with more creative alliances that happened especially chris cooper who comes back with lone star and mary mcdonald for passion fish yeah yeah i mean it's uh it, it is a, a, a truly incredible cast and just to again to think about the fact that this was a, a first first film for so many of, of these performers and yeah the, the wexler collaboration is is huge um i mean it's a you know i think it's a i, I talked about or kind of you know briefly touched on the idea of the the through line in all of his work earlier and i think you really you know when you start to watch them in order like like we're doing for this episode you really can see it and yeah how much how much of it is formed in 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 Meituan, like the, you know, the particularly kind of, uh, you know, examination of power structures and corruption yeah. and race and class and, and all the things that, that, um, sales kind of is always working, working with and on, um, yeah, and, you know, dangers he's, of he's, tribalism. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's such, a, I mean, the other thing that, that strikes you, you know, strikes me, you know, I watched, um, I rewatched Brother from Another Planet, even though we're not really talking about it today, right before I rewatched Meituan. I mean, the, 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 the leap, you know, from between those two films is so interesting. Um, but, you know, sales right from the beginning, you know, the stories he's telling, the way he's telling them, um, even in his Corman movies and, and Liana and, you know, and everything he's, he's interested in. Uh, I mean, he's kind of at the cutting edge in terms of telling diverse stories and telling, you know, making sure that kind of uh, all sides of a story are represented. And, yeah. you know, you really, you see that and you see that in Meituan. I mean, this is not, I mean, a, a much simpler version of this story would have just been about the Chris Cooper character. It would have been driven solely by 
Kenahan, you know, and, and there's, you know, three-dimensional characters abound in, in sales' movies. Um, even the bad guys, even the, the Baldwin yes. agents, you know, they, they yeah. have stories. They, they have, they're not just one-dimensional villains. Um, and that's, that's something that definitely draws me to his work and that I feel, you know, inspired by creatively, but also, you know, early on, I think that was something I was really responding to, that this was a guy who, who really, you know, focused on characters in the way that I, I wanted people to always focus on characters, sort of. Yeah, he believes in the complexity and people with flaws and how sometimes even if you have the best intentions, you're messing up or you're doing something for the right reasons, but it's the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. yeah he's always kind of looking at that. This was watching for these movies or this podcast was the first time I had ever seen City of Hope. And also I watched uh, Liana, um, which, oh, yeah. yeah, I had never seen that one before. Is there Liana? No, I'm getting all of his titles. I can't remember. Yeah. Liana. I, it's been a while yes. since I've watched that one. Yeah. That was the first time I saw that movie as well. And that is sort of a feminist tale about a um, college professor's wife who wants a divorce. She falls in love with her college professor, uh, who is a woman. So it's a lesbian love story. So sales was always kind of interested in making sure that everybody was represented. I mean, you know, his, is it, now I'm going to get this. Is it Return of the Sea Caucus 7? Am I getting that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Return yeah. of the Sea Caucus 7 predated Big Chill. He actually never really trashed Big Chill. He said he thought it was, you know, a, a movie that it was a Hollywood film that had more thought behind it. And that it was a very different film than his, you know, these are people that Lawrence Kasdan, how they would spend a three-day weekend versus the people that he knew who are maybe more lower middle class. And so he was very classy about that, but he was always kind of making these stories or putting them together ahead of time. Um, you know, you could also kind of put together Mei Chuan and Eight Men Out and their stories of labor or being yeah. manipulated or... Um, being made to lie or cheat um, by big business or gamblers or people using their, you for their own ends. Like they kind of go together. All of his movies sort of go together. They're about community and the way that history informs prejudice, what divides us, what unites us. Sometimes we're united just by the fact that we have the same enemy, which is what happens in Meituan. I didn't realize until I started doing research that this was the same area of the Hatfield and McCoys. I also didn't really know too much about that whole conflict and the deal with banking and unions and how that played into it too. So yeah, it's just, I think a very important um, film as far as his evolution into wanting to tell these stories about community and um, about exploitation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's yeah, that's spot on. And and you know, it's a he's somebody who, um, obviously does the work, you know, to to really get a place right and understand a place. He also doesn't feel trapped by that. I think he can, you know, feels free to work outside of the lines if he needs to a little bit. But 
but you really get a sense that, you know, this is somebody who, whether he's making a film set in West Virginia or Texas or, um, you know, wherever, um, that he, you know, he, he wants to paint a full picture of it and, and, you know, be respectful of the place and not present stereotypes. And I think you really feel that in, in Meituan, you know, that this is, um, again, somebody who's, done his work done his homework and uh, and of course you know it, it's um it's impossible to talk about sales without talking about his partner and creative partner maggie frenzy you know Renzi. Yeah. so i mean i know she's i mean that's a huge huge part of Maytron. i was watching the behind the scenes stuff and again you know this is this is the mid 80s or whatever when they filmed in 86 or so i don't know i can't remember off the top of my head what year it was but um you know, like I had a, there were there was an interview with Maggie Renzi and the um, extras on the Criterion Blu-ray where she's talking about that the that the crew was largely women, which mm-hmm. you know is still is still like you know not yeah, and this was the eighties, the norm, and so I think sales was always kind of doing that stuff, and I know you know um, that's that's not an isolated story. I mean, this is the story of all of his sets and all of his casts and there's a yep. you know such a such a range um and i and you know it's clear that you get you get the sense like you like you were saying with pascal wexler like people just want to they're just happy to work on something this good i mean yeah i think that's that's also you know in the extras again on the criterion you know there's interviews with james earl jones and you know, this is you know this is you know post star Wars. i mean there's you know James Earl Jones. Yeah. And they, they could have Maggie taken Ren. their pick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're talking about for, they were looking to cast that role for, for months and they were saying, you know, we need a James Earl Jones type. And, and finally they were like, let's just ask him. And, and James Earl Jones was like, yeah, this is great. You know, I want, I want to do this, of course. Um, so, amazing. I mean, just, yeah. uh, you know, that, that high level of, of work that, you know, that the, the complicated nature of the characters and the, and the, just the script. I mean, it's not, it's not easy. It's not simplistic. It's just so, you know, so carefully made. Um, mm-hmm. That's all, you know, that, that's something that just kind of shines through when you're watching it and really all of his movies. And all of them completely transport you. Uh, you wouldn't guess that this is somebody from Schenectady, New York, when you're watching yeah. these movies. All five of the ones I was just realizing when you were talking there and talking about the location, they all take place in five very distinct places, very different yeah. places. We have one in um, Alaska, one in Texas, Chicago, Illinois, and... Well, City of Hope and- is... Jersey, oh, New Jersey, and but it's uh, fiction, fictional Jersey. Let me think. Yeah, New Jersey, and then this is West Virginia, right? West Virginia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So these are all different places, exactly. Yeah, and he he's talked about the fact that he looks at setting as a character, and he mentioned when he was telling a story about how he did Passion Fish that he had gone down there with some friends, and of course Maggie, who is his partner professionally and personally somebody he's known since college 
And they went down there and, you know, saw people speaking French and just the different richness of the area. And he really wants to make sure that he's getting all of these details right. And every one of these films really feels 100% authentic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just, again, just just hearing you list them like that, it's just, I mean, that I remember thinking as a kid kind of getting into his movies, just that, that range, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just wild to, to, I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm the kind of writer who I am writing about the same place over and over, and over again, because that's, how, that's the place that I feel like I have some authority over. I've lived in Mississippi now for almost 15 years and I don't even feel like I can write about it. And the fact that sales like, can just kind of visit a place and yep. and get and get it and and get it right and you know be be I don't know it's just it's a different level of genius you know it's it's uh he's, yeah or talk to somebody and absorb their stories like yeah. he tells the story about Amy Robinson and basically baby it's you is her story she's the producer she worked with um you know, on that film for him. She also, along with Griffin Dunn, produced um, After Hours and a couple other films. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of her story of college. And so he's able to write this very first person story from a young woman's perspective, just spending time with them. And he talks about going shopping with Rosanna Arquette and a couple of the actresses and just going out for hamburgers and listening to them talk about records and boys and how that informed um, him like reworking a few things in the script. And it's just amazing that he can kind of absorb that. Maybe that is part of his background. He was a psychology major, but he also really got into theater and, you know, actors are, they study behavior and they kind of uh, take in things a little bit differently than other people do. And, yeah. you know, he's able to use all of these skill sets. And it's also amazing when you listen to him talk about how many of these scripts he's able to whip out in a year. And yeah. some of these were, were like, he think he wrote like five of these in 1977 to 1978. And then, you know, he reconfigured them later, but um, passion fish was born out of his work, like um, in hospitals being an orderly and some of the things that he witnessed way back in, you know, the college and sixties and seventies uh, era. And he made it that movie like 20 some years later, he'll say, he doesn't necessarily have, um, this was in the late 90s, a bunch of screenplays in a drawer anymore, but he said he, he always has these ideas in the back of his mind. He said some of them might have been circulating around and, you know, floating through his brain for like 10 years before he sits down. And then he's like, I can write it in four days then. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, what? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I was just rereading. And I was rereading, I guess it was in the, it's in the sales on sales book that I was rereading an interview with him where he, um, he talks about kind of that early transition from writing novels and writing stories to writing screenplays and how, you know, one of his earliest kind of breakthroughs was there were stories he was trying to write as short stories that wouldn't work that way. And then he yeah. realized, Oh, this, this can work as a screenplay. And I think that was breaking in his screenplay for breaking in was like a failed short story that 
worked as it worked as a, a script. Um, but yeah, yeah so the I was Burt also, Reynolds movie. Yep. Yeah, I was also just listening to his great. Uh, if you've ever heard it, if not, it's worth listening to that podcast. Um, the movies that made me with Joe Dante and Josh Olson. There's a great sales, you know, interview with sales, and the the premise of that podcast is basically just you know talk about the movies that influenced you when you were kind of coming up, growing up. Um, and um, sales, but sales talks about early on in the episode. He talks about writing the script for that um frankenheimer movie the, the challenge um in which i've never three. seen yeah i've never seen it either I, I guess it was it was a rewrite but basically from scratch um and he wrote it in that that he says in the interview is his record he wrote it in three days he checked into a hotel and uh or a motel and on sunset boulevard and, and basically didn't sleep and wrote the script in three days and didn't when he was done when he went home to to jersey um basically didn't remember what he'd written but it got him the job and then he and then he uh frankenheimer flew him to tokyo where they were going to film and had him do some more rewrites but you know that's that's incredible i mean you you can see that i mean that's something else i i certainly respond to responded to when i was you know first getting into him and still really respond to that kind of work aesthetic that he has of always producing i mean yeah yeah he hasn't made a movie now and nine years or whatever but he he's written uh, you know a couple of novels and you know i mean he's just he's just that kind of mm-hmm. creative you know creatively driven person yes well next up we have one of my favorite john sales pictures certainly the one i think i've watched the most 1988's eight men out a dramatization of the black Sox scandal where the players on the Chicago White Sox who uh, were underpaid, undervalued, and often mistreated accepted paid bribes from gamblers to deliberately lose the World Series in 1919. The film, beautifully shot by Robert Richardson, stars John Cusack, John Mahoney, David Strathairn, D.B. Sweeney, Charlie Sheen, Michael Rooker, Christopher Lloyd, and more. Proof that perhaps our greatest sports-centric films focus on America's favorite pastime of baseball. This movie feels like a natural progression by sales from some of the themes that he did introduce in May Tuan, as we talked about. And it still plays remarkably well, I think. So talk to me about Eight Men Out. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, as a kid, you know, I just was drawn to it first and foremost as a baseball movie, I think. Um, and also, you know, I mean, I was I was the kind of kid who was not just interested in playing and watching movies about baseball, but really invested in reading about and, you know, hearing about and watching anything about baseball history. So I was, you know, um, I mean, between this and, and Field of Dreams, you know, the the shoeless joe and the black Sox were, were very much in the air uh and and the you know the wp kinsella books that filled the dreams are you know well shoeless joe and his other books um you know all that was very much in the air so that was my my kind of probably early on reason for for being drawn to to eight men out but um re-watching it now i mean i'm just kind of blown away by it obviously as a sales movie and just seeing those connections of like you know the the big money is the real evil <laughs> the, the empathy for the players the you know the the 
fact that with the exception of maybe a couple of guys on the team, you're you're mostly seeing honest, good-hearted guys betray their values because of the way they're treated by Comiskey. So Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's heartbreaking. I mean, that's heartbreaking. And that's something you, I mean, that obviously is a theme that carries through all of his work. Like honest people, can be corrupted when they're fucked over enough right um so that's really sad and and, you know i mean the thing that struck me as a kid also i think is just how much it's about and and watching it again now how much it's about loss of wonder yes with the little boys that look up to bucky and oh yeah and and yeah i mean of course the the line the the most famous line, I guess, or the line I remember the most from when I was little is say it ain't so Joe. And yep. it's just such a sad, sad moment. And, and the, and Cusack's line, you know, and when, when they're like, uh, the, those kids are asking him if it's true. And he's like, you know, when you, when you grow up, things get complicated. Yep. Um, and, and he didn't even, I mean, those are the two players that like clearly didn't even do anything to, to throw games. Yeah. Um, and they get swept up in it. So it's, you know, it's um, incredible detail, incredible period piece. I was reading another interview in, in uh, that Sales on Sales book where he kind of talks about a bunch of his movies as, you know, in, in like musical terms. And he was saying yes. Maitwan is, is, yeah, Maitwan's like a, a mountain ballad and, and Eight Men Out is a, you know, jazz age kind of the pacing is like, a, you know, jazz number from the jazz age and i think you really feel that especially the the distinction between those two movies the slower kind of Mm -hmm. you know hazier feel of matron as compared to the more the kind of bouncy bounciness of uh of eight men out yeah i actually um put a post-it in that exact spot so we kind of zeroed in on the same thing yeah dawn of the jazz age so it has a much faster rhythm City of Hope opens with this industrial strength rock and roll and the sound of an elevator. It's relentless from that point on. Rather than fast cutting, I have the trading. Information and story just keep coming at you. It's not quite Oliver Stone, but it is an in-your-face kind of movie. There's not much relief in it. In some other some of the other movies, I actually will do something just for relief. In the baseball scene in Meichuan, bad shit is going to happen fairly soon. But we have to have a time where things look hopeful before the audience goes under again. It's almost like a drum roll to prepare you for the fall. There's no drum roll of the wonderfulness in City of Hope. They're little snatched moments. Yes. Yeah. And... Um, you know, this movie also with the fact that a sales is somebody he talks about uh, playing sports growing up. He played them yeah. in high school pretty seriously. But one of the things he talked about, he knew he didn't want to be in the military, not so much because of Vietnam, as much as he just didn't want to, to do that. Um, he said he was excused because he was missing a vertebrae. But he also when he went to college, He didn't want to go to a college that was going to expect him to play sports because he didn't want to have to do it. 
which I thought was really interesting. But there's this sort of um, the sense of community and sports bringing uh, people together we see in Meituan, like we have a little bit of a happy or an uplift uh, with baseball, but then there's some darkness behind it and it kind of pays off in this movie uh, 100%. This one, I think, also is a good indicator of the talent you're going to see with people like John Cusack and D.B. Sweeney. When I watch Eight Men Out, it makes me really wish that we would have done more with D.B. Sweeney, who I think yeah, is... Yeah, he's so, he's so good in it, man. I was, so I was good. actually... It like, had been a while since theory. I watched it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I can't... I mean, D.B. Sweeney is one of those... There's a whole host of actors that I remember, you know, from when I was little being very big presences, and now I hardly ever think about them yeah and db sweeney's like that kind of guy and i I, you know i hadn't rewatched anything with him in a while other than maybe the cutting edge which my daughter really likes i love that yeah i I love it too and um but i'd forgotten you know how good he is in this movie i mean just that that scene with him you know covering his eye and and, uh, or when he has to sign the contract with the ex and he's He wants help because uh, usually he has somebody with him. Was it his wife, I believe? Like somebody to kind of help and then they manipulate him while the guys are all signing it. And yeah, he just didn't get, he didn't get um, the roles he should have gotten after this. I don't think. No, he's so, he's so good in it. But Cusack is, I mean, Cusack's great. You know, it's, I mean, that's no shock. He's great in a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. but I don't. This is an early powerful one. Yeah, I mean, and to to think of the, you know, the just the the era, uh, you know, that era for him of going from like, you know, better off dead to this to say anything. What a, yep. again, you know, what On what a yeah. range and and just capable of great real emotion. I think, and you really see it in this character. I mean, you know, again, it's full of great performances and David Strathairn is, I mean, we're probably going to be just one of the best actors. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about how incredible he is all the time. I guess limbo is kind of his biggest showcase of this bunch, but he's great in everything. Um, Yeah. I didn't realize until I was doing a little research that he had gone to college with uh with sales yeah and actually gordon clapp had put them in plays together like there are some great photos i think in sales on sales of them doing you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest and of mice and men with uh sales and uh david and yeah it's just insane to think about that they all kind of started working together um from then on and it's been one of his you know most important collaborators and uh, yeah, he is used to brilliant effect. It also shows, you know, his character, Eddie Seacott, um, is a pitcher who is being just really used and badly abused his body. And how much does he have left? And he has to put himself through this. And, you know, that goes through um, a few of the other films by sales. It's like, what are we doing to our workers and yeah. uh, healthcare? And these passions that had influenced him for, you know, um, so many years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is, I mean, even though it's not, you know, uh, about it, it is about the the need for union <laughs> for these, for these players, yes. you know? Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, very tied to Meituan in that way. I mean, it feels like 
uh, you know, the uh, just a very similar story dressed up, uh, you know, a totally different way. And obviously, you know, it's not violent in the way that the the, <laughs> the story in Meituan becomes, but there's definitely through lines, major through lines be- between between both works that are, um, you know, I think they, they seem like they were the works that the two, you know, at that period, especially like the two that had haunted him for longest, the two stories he wanted to tell the most, like he had both of those kind of in his hip pocket for a while before he finally got them made. And, and you could tell just the level of thought and effort that went into both of those films. Yeah, it's interesting also thinking of like something Bill and I do is, you know, kind of fantasy put together double feature ideas. And so when I was watching May Chuan, I was thinking, oh, this would go with like Harlan County, USA or something. And then I was also, though, when I watched these in quick succession, like May Chuan and Eight Men Out are kind of of the same piece for yeah. sure. They really yeah, do. I think they take they take place within a year of each other or something too right? yeah I mean, as far as when when they got made yeah 100 percent. i mean even that even like the when they're set is within oh, a year yeah. of each oh, other right? you're yeah. right yes um yeah. which is interesting i mean just to think about these two different you know Worlds. chicago versus yep. rural west virginia i mean it's it's wild yeah, no matter where you are, you can't escape the man. No, this old 60s yeah. <laughs> sort of thing coming back from sales. Yeah, but also another double feature idea I was thinking was uh, I'm somebody who's obsessed with Moneyball. And so when I was uh, watching oh, yeah. it this time, I was thinking of, you know, the, the Chris Pratt character in Moneyball, who mm. um, is kind of almost like put out to pasture. He's not quite there and people don't see his value or his worth because um, he, you know, isn't the young guy or they finding value in people who have been sort of uh, neglected or thrown on the the pile, essentially. And I thought, uh, yeah. you know, these are two stories rooted in truth and they kind of go together, even though they're set so many years apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I've I've had I've not seen Moneyball since it came out, so that'd be a good good uh, double feature rewatch for me. Oh, one of my favorites. Well, when I uh, was visiting my grandpa, I put this on Twitter. Actually, this was around 2000, right before I moved to Arizona. I went to the library and I was looking around for like movies to entertain my grandparents because I was there for a week and a half, and you know you run out of things to talk about. And yeah. so um, I saw Eight Men Out and I hadn't seen the film in years and I, I knew he would enjoy it, but I didn't know how much. And so when I put it on, it was so funny, even though he was born in, I want to say like 1928 or around there, you know, he just knew the whole story. He knew all the characters or the people that they were based upon. And he did love baseball a lot as a younger man. And so it was really funny, like from the moment that movie started, I couldn't hear any of the dialogue. All of a sudden, my grandpa was just talking a blue streak about, we'll see what Shoeless Joe did and like filling me in on everybody's genealogy and their stories. And it's one of those things, like such a good experience. And I wish that, you know, we have smartphones now, but I wish I could go back in time in 2000 and like turn on my phone and record (laughs) George just telling all the stories. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, and you, the other thing I wanted to say that you you mentioned when we were talking about Meituan, um, I can't remember what you said, but you said something about, 
his ideas about acting and and um and the fact that he's an actor too i mean and, and these are of, of all of his performances i think these are two of my favorites you know matron is the as the preacher the kind yeah. of old testament fire and brimstone preacher and then in eight men out you know he's so good it's you know he's so good in eight men out and him and studs turkle walking around uh, <laughs> and just just being being great great presences throughout the film and really kind of the in a lot of ways kind of the the soul of the film those two characters uh, yeah the, the compass the, the moral compass yeah i was going to yeah. ask you that because i think this is probably my favorite of the sales performances yeah it was interesting in in the interviews book he kept getting asked that repeatedly by yeah. so many people in the, the university of um mississippi yes oh, yeah. the university of mississippi press book gathered interviews from like a couple decades people kept bringing up the you know you're in your movies is this your hitchcock thing and he kept saying he didn't want to be like hitchcock he doesn't need to be in every one of his movies and he said um also because he really places so much value on acting and he wants to make sure he's doing the work and talking about relationships and where his character's at and he's like i can't be doing that if i'm worried about shots or what i'm going to edit later and he said so sometimes you know he's always keeping an eye on a part for maggie renzi yeah. uh he said but you know he's like the last person he thinks of except uh when he notices because he's like six four if the the person he's playing is around that height um, yeah. <laughs> or has something in common he's like oh i can do this and so then yeah. he'll do it yeah yeah well I, mean, I love that he's got i mean it's basically you know he's basically got a company of actors yes. that you know have have uh worked and he's just one of the company really so there's mm -hmm. that's that's part of his his charm too you know i mean i think that he's he treats himself like that like he's part of the company even though he's the writer director editor co-star you know but he's just part of it um, yes. so especially in these in these 90s movies you know he's he pops up in a bunch of them and he's always such a great great presence as an actor too yeah exactly these um stories that he tells with his stable of actors when i was watching these this time around i was seeing more of a link between him and altman than i guess oh, i yeah, remember yeah. in the 90s uh being there maybe i wasn't fully putting that together i could see maybe some alan rudolph but um but i don't know why it didn't really link up for altman for me until um this time around and then in a few of the interviews he was citing altman and he was oh, saying yeah, uh, nashville sense. was um a big influence and i thought that was interesting because you know you see that like our next film that we're going to talk about people kept asking him about Spike Lee. That's why in my mind, because City of Hope was totally new to me. I'm like, oh yeah, it's, um, you know, is this New York? Oh, it's New Jersey because John Sales is New Jersey and he's directed Springsteen videos. And, um, but they kept asking him about, is this your do the right thing? And um, he's like, you know, I could make do the right thing, but despite we have Spike Lee for that, or that's his neighborhood <laughs> and that's his street. And he said, um, you know, I could make mean streets, but we have Scorsese for that. He knows that area. And so um, this is his thing. And he just surrounds himself with uh, the right people and uh, that are willing to go on all of these adventures. Yeah. The movie that listening to you talk about all of these films, another one that would be totally new to me besides 
City of Hope and Liana would be, um, I need to seek out a brother from another planet. That one I have yet to see. So it's on, it's on Tubi. Yeah. It's on Tubi. Yep. And Morton it's, is in it's our great. next one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I love I love Joe Morton so much, um, and I love that he's in so many of these sales movies. Um, yeah, it was so cool to see um, Joe Morton in these because the other night I watched Speed uh, with my mom. She yeah. had a rough day at work. She loves Speed, so I'm like, "Hey, let's watch Speed." And you know, you got Joe Morton there too. And so I'm sure by the end of the year, all these salespeople are going to wind up all over my letterbox. <laughs> you know, like most watched. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's, this... yeah, it's, it's already happening to me. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that what you're saying about Altman is spot. I mean, I think I, you know, I don't know if it was totally obvious to me at the time, even though I was kind of simultaneously getting into Altman and sales because I was watching the player and shortcuts at the same time I was watching, you know, Lone Star and, yeah. and uh, you know, City of Hope or whatever. Um, so I, I was responding to certainly the, the ensemble elements of, of both, that, but yeah, sales definitely. I mean, you can really feel it in, in I think a movie like Lone Star, the influence yes. in Nashville. And you can feel. I mean, McCabe and Miss Miss Miller must, you know, that must be a huge influence on on him. Um, For sure. I mean, so did I say Mrs. Miller? Is it McCabe and Mister Miller? Was it Mister Mrs. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. <laughs> Miller? Yeah, this is okay. I don't know why all of a sudden I was questioning my my. Uh, no, I know my software. Some of, these, yeah, <laughs> some of these titles for sure. Well, this brings us back to Bill, who's going to introduce City of Hope. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I wrote up just a short little thing sure. for this one. Um, set in the fictional Hudson City, New Jersey, though it was shot in Cincinnati, and featuring a big ensemble cast, City of Hope is a piercing look at corruption and compromise. It's an incredible cast, including sales regulars Joe Morton, Vincent Spano, Angela Bassett, David Strathairn, Kevin Ty, sales himself, Chris Cooper. And it also features Tony LoBianco, Frankie Faison, Barbara Williams, a, a bit part from Lawrence Tierney, and many more actors. Um, weaves the trajectories of a dozen characters through a story filled with humor and violence. Um, sales addresses the most volatile issues of uh, American life. Joe Morton plays Wynn, an honest city councilman faced mm -hmm. with a controversy that could destroy the city. Vincent Spano is Nick, the dirtbag son of a corrupt contractor whose attempt to escape his father's cynical world of payoffs and fixes leads to betrayal and death. Uh, it can be summed up in one line that um, the mayor character says. Uh, he says, America, huh? <laughs> um, you can. I think one of the things that's most striking to me about City of Hope is you can really see the blueprint for. I'm sure other people have talked about this or written about it, but really struck me this time. Um, you can see the blueprint for The Wire and other kind of '90s yes, and aughts, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. '90s aughts prestige television owes a, a a great debt to sales, including The Wire. Sopranos and um, and other shows, and you know it's it's weird to me that sales um, watching one TV show he did in in uh, the early nineties or late eighties, Shannon's Deal, um, never worked in, in television really, but his, his type of storytelling is so well suited to it. You can see how it influenced people like David Simon and David Chase, I think. Yeah, no, it's a really good uh, comparison that you were doing, linking it to The Wire. I didn't even put that one together. 
Yeah. And listening to you cite the other ones, I was thinking also of like homicide life on the street yeah. and kind of this um, novel, novelistic style of, of television. As we're recording this right now, we just got the news uh, not too long ago that we lost Robbie Coltrane, um, the great uh, actor. And he was in another of my favorite shows from this era overseas called Cracker. And that's kind of another oh, yeah. one that sort of deals with other sociological issues and the psychology of people and behavior. And um, yeah, this would kind of like, if you like this, check those out or vice versa. This was my first time watching this movie. Um, it was cool to see Vincent Spano again, because he was so good in Baby It's Oh, yeah. Yeah with Roseanne Arquette, which I haven't even seen in a long time, but that one really made an impression on me. And I yeah. need to um, dig it out because I do have the, the Blu-ray. I was sent that as press, like back when it was released, I need to find that again and rewatch it because um, it was really good. And he was excellent in it. And I thought his character was fascinating. It kind of um, has you know, they were talking to sales, comparing it to on the waterfront. First, they always try to compare things like, is this your Spike Lee movie? They were also asking him, is this your on the waterfront movie? And he was saying how on the waterfront to him is a film that tries to have it both ways. Like it's bad to rat or it's good to rat, but then you do this or then you get in there and mix it up. And so he didn't want to do that. But thinking about kind of a tough but vulnerable screw up kind of character that that Vincent Spano's character plays. I love in the film how he falls for this woman who has been um, unlucky in love and things that have turned men off of her like she has a child. And Sales mentioned that the child um, had cerebral palsy and there were all these other things that I don't think it too too focused on as much as that he was kind of building a lot with her character and her histories with men and he uh the spano character finally sees this woman as somebody to care about because she's serious and maybe somebody who by caring about her, her realizes um he has value and i thought that was a good idea um of course you know it's devastating one of the interviewers uh, just went in and said like this isn't really a feel-good movie which is kind of a dumb <laughs> way to like kick it off and he said no we were gonna call it the feel bad movie of the year but it wasn't you know, <laughs> doing well so yeah it it's um a dark one morton is so good because it shows you um how you know you can go in just as bill was saying earlier with May Chuan or eight men out like you are you can have the best of intentions or want to do the right thing but you might get fucked over and you might have to play the game and how do you play the game and yeah all of those questions are uh woven throughout I think yeah I mean you know and again um for me just as a as a kind of storyteller you know uh, it was it was the kind of the kind of story I loved, you know, it was what, what I was responding to and what I still respond to the most is kind of, you know, webs of connections, the, the, these, you know, paths crossing and that there are characters like, like, you know, the two main characters uh, are, are Joe Morton's character and Vincent Spano's character. And they, they kind of edge against each other, but they never meet. 
you know, but there are all, the, all these other characters linking them and uniting them yeah. and these, these through lines in the story. So very like, you know, very novelistic in scope, a, a crime, a crime movie, sort of, or yes. crime epic, sort of, but also it's way more focused on place and character and, and, the people. and you know, yeah, just all the stuff that I'm really interested in exploring, like, you know, the I consequences. I see that with your work too like it's it's yeah, crime I, adjacent it's in the crime milieu but it isn't that isn't its goal it's about these people first yeah and i the mean community. in a lot of ways it's kind of the blueprint for me i think you know <laughs> i mean because it's it's so much of you know what i just what i want to do derives from from this you know i mean um and this you know early kind of exposure to this but it's also very much the same as Meituan and eight, you know, it's yeah. again all about these corrupt power structures and systemic racism and uh, and and you know just the way that the the big guy eats the little guy um, yeah. over and over again this never ending cycle. But like Pac Man, yeah, yeah, it also has incredible empathy for all the characters. Not you, know, yes. you can really see there's nobody in this movie that's. It's one dimensional, even like, you know, cops that could be very one dimensionally evil. I know, are, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Not quite, you know, not quite evil. Even if they are seen as bad, you still see some human side of them or mm -hmm. still have some aspect of humanness about them. And, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's interesting. I, the other thing, I mean, I, I hesitate to bring this up, but it came up in our, our group that thread the other day. So I'm going to, I'm going to mention it that. Um, somebody mentioned uh, the Paul Haggis movie Crash. And one of the reasons I hate that movie so much is that it always felt to me like it was trying to do what like City of Hope does yeah, well. It was or better, signposting you know. too much, yeah. I think. Like and it was a talking, kind of Hollywood yeah. Hollywoodization of City of Hope, which is doesn't, you know, doesn't really seek to provide answers at all. You know, and, and in fact it ends with the, you know with the kind of idea that that we're in an echo chamber where, where things aren't really going to change mm -hmm. um and you know so I, I think that that's that's uh you know just uh it's it's dark and unrelenting view but there are these as as uh mary elizabeth master antonio's character in limbo says kind of moments of grace that, that characters have uh, where they're you know you you see them like joe morton and angela bassett or or yes. nick and nick and angela um you know i think that's the, her his, his the character name yeah character name yeah you know that you have those you you see those moments you you, you um are allowed to see those moments as kind of reprieves from you know the the cycles that they're all caught up in and not going to get out of you know yeah, I think so. And it's, um, I'm glad you also brought up the police officer characters because they are complex. Uh, that was a, a part of the interview, um, press yeah. tour. People kept bringing that up. Um, sales is somebody, his maternal and paternal grandparents were both, um, actually, I think it was the grandfathers on both sides 
were police officers. And so he talked about, you know, police is definitely a tribe, but there are arguments within. And so he said he sees, um, you know, all aspects of that, like, you know, as much as they are their own thing, you know, <laughs> like, you know, blue, they're, you know, nobody is or nothing. They're not a monolith is what the important thing is. And so he wanted to make sure that that was represented well, I think, in honor of, uh, you know, family members and people he knew for sure. He did, I think, make it interesting that um, something happens. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but um, that the person who isn't really comfortable with going along with it or is questioning is new on the force he's relatively young and so he right. might not be as willing to play the game kind of like how the joe morton character is a politician who wants to be honest and doesn't want to play the game or curry favors or ask things like you know i'll do this for you you do this for me and so it's these people trying to figure out what they can live with and what they what they can do and i thought that was powerful yeah he, well he's really yeah, he's really generally interested in those those yeah. moments i think even kenahan and and metuan is like somebody who's yep. not done a lot of organizing is kind of figuring things out and i think he you know i've read that interview today too where he's talking about you know our cops made like this or do they become this mm -hmm. over a certain period of time so he's really he's definitely really interested in that kind of period of you know, yeah. of being corrupted or, or being loss know, of fighting innocence. against, yeah, yeah, loss of innocence. And like he also, said, men out. I, yep. I wrote, I wrote down a quote from um, that thinking in pictures book. He was talking about Meituan, but I think it really applies to all of his work. And, and I was thinking about the cops in city of hope, you know, in comparison to the Baldwin agents in Meituan. And, and the, the line from the book is, you know, in Meituan, I try to give even the most negative of characters, something to play besides evil and you yes. know i think that i think that comes through in city of hope too you know that you have characters who could very easily be one-dimensionally evil but they have these little moments of yep. humanity that, that make you pause if not empathize with them or sympathize with them that make you pause and think of their their humanity yeah and you really see that in uh lone star for sure oh, yeah. i mean yeah that is a film where moral choices are made and all kinds of things play out. And, um, you know, what you go in thinking about somebody might be totally different by the end of the movie. And, you know, that's what sales does so well. I think he doesn't yeah. like to use a lot of internal monologues. They were talking about his fiction and his um just as writing in general and that might come from being uh, somebody interested in theater you're saying it's easy to do it like that and he would rather depend on behavior or people talking like what they say and what they do and um you know you really see that i think in this film for sure yeah yeah absolutely also the one other thing about city of hope before we move on just um i don't know if we we i think you mentioned robert richardson shot eight men out right and he also yes. shot city of hope and i think I, I love the look of city of hope which is got that robert richardson halo kind of effect quite a yeah. lot um it looks really good i mean you know it's it's one of to me one of his best looking movies i think um 
And it kind of, you know, I, I feel like some of the stuff from Lone Star on, I think they they look really good, but they look very kind of like Lone Star and Limbo and even more recent stuff like Sunshine State have a similar kind of they do. look even and feel to them. color palette kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But City of Hope feels pretty unique in mm-hmm. uh, in the sales filmography in terms of its its uh its look and it's really yeah it's it oh the other thing I, you probably and that same i think it's that same interview where he talks about city of hope being the only time that he didn't do research for uh something he worked on and i mean i'm assuming that's because he's writing about yeah. jersey and you know um writing about essentially kind of you know, not autobiographically, but probably as close to autobiographical as as one of his movies gets. I don't know. Yeah, um, no, I agree. At with least you. writing about a place that's familiar to me. I think he talks about in that same interview about this kind of, even though it's set in Jersey, it's kind of a fictional mix of like Boston and Atlanta and Hoboken and other other cities he's lived in, mm-hmm. um, and shot in weirdly enough, shot in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was um, a really great film that I'd always been meaning to see. So I was so glad that you chose it. And um, so I could track it down for sure. Well, next up, we have a film that plays like a companion piece to City of Hope, one about another cultural melting pot and the uneasy relationships and prejudices that reside due to history, passed down trauma and more set in a Texas border town. As 1996's Lone Star opens, the skeleton of a murdered mercurial sheriff is found in the desert. And as the mystery of that man's life and death is gradually uncovered by his predecessor, Chris Cooper, long buried secrets that will change everything also come to light. Co-starring Matthew McConaughey, Elizabeth Pena, Chris Christopherson, Joe Morton, Francis McDormand, and more. Let's talk about Lone Star. So do you remember when you first saw this one? Lone Star, I would have seen pretty soon after it came out, because I think mm-hmm. by that point I was I was all in. It was and it's also, I mean, I think, you know, probably his most well-known movie. I think uh, maybe is most critically acclaimed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if you, even if you look at like, not that I put too much stock in this, but if you look at like a director's filmography on Letterboxd, it, it usually is kind of organized by popularity. And yeah. Lone Star, Lone Star comes first for sales. And I, I think, yeah, probably is most critically acclaimed and really, you know, uh, the mid nineties are the only time I can imagine a movie like this being a, a hit, you know, I just can't, I can't see that um, happening now. I know. The same way. Um, <laughs> but the I, yeah. Pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also interesting. You know, I rewatched, actually just rewatched it yesterday and I hadn't seen it in a while. And it was right after I watched Fargo, which came out the same year. So it's Francis McDormand, uh, inadvertently a Francis McDormand double feature, even though she's only in a tiny bit of Lone Star. Um, but yeah, so it was a again a huge kind of formative year for me. Ninety six is when I was you know graduating high school, going into college. So I, I saw Lone Star pretty soon after it came out, and and loved it. Yeah, I mean, I loved again you know the the ensemble storytelling, kind of crime crime adjacent. There is a you know essentially kind of a, a murder mystery being solved here, but it's not dealt with in a formulaic way or, or kind of goes against 
expectation somewhat. Um, what he calls, you know, another quote I wrote down from thinking in pictures, I think it was in relation to, um, Maitron again. Um, he says movies that make the audience ask questions almost invariably have to push beyond genre, push beyond the satisfying ritual of the expected. And I think that's something that, that goes for all of these movies that we're talking about. And, and Lone Star is, you know, I think it felt revelatory to me at the time for that reason. Like there is a murder mystery plot that this is kind of hung on but yeah. it's really not, not about important. That. You know, I mean, that's not what it's about. It's about all these other, all these other things, you know, all these, these cultures, you know, smashing together in this town and the, the, the complexity of all these, these characters and, you know, the, the, the presentness of the past and the way yeah. legends infect, uh, the way we learn history and understand history. I mean, just so much complicated stuff that, that goes on under the, the surface of this movie. And, and um, again, you know, great, great ensemble cast, great performances. I, I mean, I walked away from this rewatch just, just marveling at the fact that Elizabeth Pena didn't, you know, just get awards or become a much, much bigger star. I know she's gone on to have a pretty, good career but she's she's i think she's wonderful in this and, and um yeah it's just i love it i you know I, I think it's uh um you know i think a lot of people will say it's his best i don't know if i quite agree with that but it's mm, it's certainly no, a film i love excellent yeah 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 and it's one that um i remember seeing way back when and i had not revisited it until um in preparation for this podcast and I really think it it is one that depends upon just like City of Hope, because there are so many characters um, really does depend on and get richer. If you watch it again, like I want to see City of Hope again to kind of absorb everything a little bit better and also to see how he sort of lets the same um, themes kind of play out with multiple characters like we talked about the link between a couple of uh, like Morton and Spano and in, in City of Hope and in this case um, there's a really curious scene that um, I was I, at first when I watched this and I think I remember it way back then too and I'm thinking how does this even fit where Chris Cooper's character goes and visits an ex played by Frances McDormand. And she's hilarious. <laughs> she steals the scene. She almost seems like she's in a different movie. Like at first you're like, how are these characters ever married? Um, she's football obsessed. <laughs> she's just talking about her daddy and, you know, with the Southern affectation. And then the more I started to think about how, I didn't really put it into that much um, intellectual thought or I didn't analyze it well. But then when I was reading an interview, he put it so perfectly that she is the ghost of Christmas future for Chris Cooper, who's trying to like live down, you know, his father. He said he um, wanted to be his dad for the first 15 years of his life. And then he wanted to like give him a heart attack for the next 15 years or you know, if you don't escape from your own skeletons or come out from your father's um, shell or your dad issues, 
you're just going to be this person sitting in the house shouting about football and in the case of Frances McDormand. And I thought, oh, that's that's interesting because she almost yeah. like Coen Brothers character when, you know, you see her and she's. Well, just yeah. Like, yeah. That's yeah. a great point. And I was actually I mean, because I watched Fargo and Lone Star yesterday, too, I was thinking of that weird, interesting yeah. parallel between the Mike Yanagita scene in Fargo and that scene in Lone Star, like these one yes. one off scenes where with characters who seem <laughs> kind of unrelated to to the story yeah. and some, some but yeah. but they they do work. They do work and they and they linger in your mind and you're kind of puzzling about like what their significance what is. What they're saying. But yeah. Yes. I think that's 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 spot on. And you know, one of the things on that kind of on that same note, I think um lone star is is and this exists in these other movies too and and especially i guess in city of hope but it feels like it comes to a kind of apex in lone star this kind of father son thread and sales work because you've got both yes. joe morton and his dad and you've got chris cooper living with the ghost of of his dad and you know it's just really ultimately the movie's kind of one of you know one of its primary concerns it's got it's got many others too but um you know the that second generation kind of yeah expectations and and what you live up to we're going to see that also in limbo with the mother and the daughter yeah um you know sales talked about being from people like when he was talking about seacock of seven he said you know his people or his friends or that class of people were often the first in their family to go to a four-year college yeah Yeah. and I was thinking about um, some of the kids I grew up with you know I was the first in my family my mom had gone to university but I was the first in the family to get an actual baccalaureate degree and you know so I was kind of thinking about that when I was reading uh, his interviews and what he was saying about these characters. And so many of them, it, it's about the work ethic and it's about, you know, what do they owe the the generations behind them and what do they want from the future? And Lone Star really encapsulates that as far as history goes, you know, like he, he points out in a different interview that this was Texas was its own country for a little bit, yeah. you know, and uh, you're dealing with, like it's all it's its own thing for sure like it's part of the south but texas is texas and um how everybody in texas also again linking it to spike lee talks about um the black owner of a bar is kind of like the mayor for um the black residents and that would sort of you would see in uh do the right thing you know everybody has their own tribes which is what um john sales is kind of talking about in all of his movies you know you have the italians versus um the blacks or the whites and and you see that in may chuan you see that here like you know the people coming over the border even and then you have uh yes um you know, Mexican-American residents who, uh, you know, don't like that, or you have all of this internal prejudice going on. And yeah, it's, it's a fascinating film about, um, have we escaped the sins of the past or the history, or are they just going to keep playing out unless we confront them? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's incredible, you know, to, to think, how much he gets in here and and how he handles it because you know there's there's another version of this movie that that 
beats you over the head with its message or, or, you know, beats you over the head with how you should feel about what's being presented and sales doesn't do that. No. He finds ways to, 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 you know, explore these things and, and, you know, in meaningful ways without making it feel like it's, you know, a message movie or like a, you know, or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's really, you know, part of it has to do, I think, again, with that kind of ability to tell all these stories or that interest yep. in telling all of these, all these stories, not just That's focusing on yeah. Chris Cooper and his dad, you know, and, and his dad, you know, um, the fact that this movie is as interested or more interested even in Joe Morton and Elizabeth Pena and, you know, Elizabeth yeah. Pena's mother, mother and, you know, that, that's all really, um, really. Aunt Pena uh, was extraordinary in this. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. I love that. I mean, that, you know, that scene of them, um, which he talks about in one of those interviews, um, scene of them alone uh in in the cafe when she mm -hmm. plays the jukebox just kind of this yeah this moment uh, again this moment of kind of grace they're both allowed outside of the the bounds of you know society or whatever you know that they yes. um yeah i mean i also i mean one of the other things i love about it is the the way he shoots you know the the um, the past, you know, that the camera just kind of moves into the, instead of there being a cut or dissolved, there's just a camera movement and you're, you're, that just takes you into this past moment. That's a kind of a flashback moment, um, which I think is really effective and obviously in getting across mm -hmm. this idea that the, the past is never, you know, in that Faulknerian uh, sense, like the past is never past, that it's, it's with these characters actually with them the point where it's happening simultaneously um you know that's that's really uh you know something i love about this movie yeah a hundred percent for sure and you know the past is not the past and you can kind of see again another filmmaker that i talked about how there will be blood might have been slightly influenced oh, by yeah. paul thomas anderson watching lone star you can maybe see paul thomas anderson really digging this one as well yeah I, that's good i mean that's I, I really do i mean when you said that about meituan that's definite that feels like it had to be an influence and you can even feel in some of these some of these sales movies must have been an influence on something like magnolia i mean even though yeah. Magnolia feels clearly more Altman, Altman Altmanish. Yeah, but there's something, something there. I don't think I've ever heard uh, PTA talk about sales, but it feels like it makes total sense in some yeah. ways. Yeah, might just be one of those subconscious things for sure. Like yeah. yesterday in um, an episode that I was recording with the author Susan Elliott McNeil, we were talking about Black Klansmen. And uh, she was mentioning seeing an interview with Spike Lee where they were bringing up um, Birth of a Nation and how in the movie he used like a wipe that um, was kind of identical to that. And they said, was it specifically from Birth of a Nation? Were you, were you doing that? And he said, you know, I've seen Birth of a Nation in film school, but it wasn't just something that I was deciding to do, but it must have just stayed in my mind and I did it yeah. without even thinking. So that could be too. These could just be movies, you know, that Anderson yeah. or 
uh, has seen and just um, maybe they influenced him and he's not aware of it. Maybe I'm just like looking out of left field, but yeah, um, it feels, yeah. it feels right to me. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lastly, we have a film we both love and one that, although I hadn't seen it since its release in 1999, the boldly uncompromising ending had been so seared in my brain that seldom a month has gone by since that I haven't thought about this ending. Needless to say, I'm so glad you chose Limbo. So I finally had an excuse to rewatch this haunting, affecting movie set in a small, economically downtrodden Alaskan town where it seems like everyone has a past or secrets worthy of Lone Star. Uh, Limbo finds Sale's longtime friend, muse, and collaborator, David Strathairn, giving a tender, tough, yet vulnerable turn as a former fisherman and ex-basketball hero who became a handyman following a devastating tragedy. Getting involved with a newcomer, a beautiful worldlier lounge singer with a bad romantic track record played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, plus her teenage daughter. While the first half of the movie acquaints us with these people and this specific place, the second keeps us guessing as they find themselves in peril, constantly shifting on its axis. It's never quite what you expect, yet remains endlessly compelling no matter what happens next. So what is your take on Limbo? Oh, man, I love I love it. Yeah. Um, and I, like like you, I mean, it's one of those movies that I think just kind of haven't stopped thinking about in some sense since I first first saw it. Um, you know, I think I remember it being in the air again after. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. So, you know whatever yeah. spoil a 25 year old movie um, oh, you're fine you can talk about it but i mean I, I remember it being in the air again you know at some point after the sopranos ended because yes um people were you know people who knew limbo were making the connection that that ending of the sopranos was influenced by the ending of limbo um so you know that that has always kind of that connection has kind of stayed in my mind. And I, I think about them kind of, you know, um, again, being David Chase, and you mentioned yeah, that earlier I mean, with city of hope. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, that, that influence, I think can't be underestimated. Uh, you know, those, those, those two in particular, I feel like Simon and Chase, like, uh, you know, are, are, are picking up things from sales that are, uh, you know, huge. Um, so, that obviously is a big, big thing that's kind of stayed with me. But beyond that, I mean, you know, I, I think about it a lot because 1999, like a lot of people, I think 1999 is one of my favorite movie years. Um, it's one of the best. Yep. It, yeah, it's just just an incredible year. So I'm kind of constantly going back and, and looking at what came out that year and revising like what my, what my favorites are. But I mean, in a, in a year that's like, you know, Bringing Out the Dead, Eyes Wide Shut, Ghost Dog, Magnolia, Virgin Suicides, I don't know, on and on and on. Um, Limbo stands out as still as, as one of my one of my favorites. Um, I love David Strathairn. Uh, I think yes. this is, you know, one of my favorite performances of his, if not my favorite. I love, I've always loved, and will always love Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. And, and I think this is really her last great, 
it is. movie. You know, I mean, yeah. she was in the perfect storm after this, but I think that's really even the last, I think the perfect storm, which is a couple of years after this is maybe the last movie on her and her filmography. And, you know, it's all TV stuff after that, but she's um, brilliant in this, I think, you know, and, and so um, those performances are, are really haunting and, and memorable to me. I think about it as one of the great um, gear shift movies of all time that you have. Yes, it really the is. First, you know, the first hour is kind of your typical sales kind of like, you know, that feels very much like Lone Star and, and you know, more recent movies like Sunshine State and, you know, and, and it's interrogation of a place and this big ensemble mm-hmm. cast. And then, you know, you hit that whatever it is, hour, hour and five minute mark, and it becomes this whole, wholly different movie where it's just tight, claustrophobic almost, you know, the, just with these these three characters and uh, as they get, you know, get in this situation and get wind up getting stranded on this island. It's just a, it's just a really brilliant turn. And watching it this time, I was really, you know, just struck by how much of, you know, the first half of the movie thematically sets that up that you have this that developer guy who's talking about basically you know alaska as theme park and then the second half of the movie is like this survivalist tale where you're seeing people like actually put in that that situation the great and mary elizabeth mester antonio's character that great line like um she says something like people pay money to have experiences like this like come on trips like this and um and you know it it just again same as in in Lone Star, kind of legend or myth versus reality. Like all of a sudden you're in you're in this situation that you don't know if you're going to be able to escape from. Yeah, storytelling and myth to make sense of your own reality uh, that pays off um, in the second half of the movie. Um, I believe is it Vanessa Martinez plays. Oh, yeah, another sale. Yeah, another sales regular. She's in a bunch of. She is good. She plays the daughter and uh, her character as they are sort of stranded and it becomes a survivalist um, thing, but it keeps changing. Like I remember Roger Ebert's review of this movie talking about how it it kept changing on you, but it had to keep doing this and it was more lifelike and the surprising ending and how it, he was talking about the surprises, but her character finds a book and as she's reading the the book it's about like three characters and um what she's reading you can see paying off or are they her internal thoughts and her own feelings about uh the david strathairn character who we realize uh she has a bit of a crush on or it was maybe crossed with wishing she had a father figure so it's kind of that messy Um, thing of some woman who uh, because her mom has had all these flings with these various men over time like she meets a good man and kind of gets stuck on him and um, you know there's idea of storytelling to make sense out of uh, her situation I think is is really beautiful and it also kind of goes to the bigger picture and theme of limbo which is it's set in a place where people do go to reinvent themselves That's what sales talks about. He said a lot of times with these people that he was 
um, when he was doing research with Alaska, they had to develop a lot of skills early or they had things happen to them at a young age. So they, they're very fiercely independent people and they've lived these, you know, just worldly lives. And when they go to Alaska, they might be running from something. They might, you know, want to just change everything. And that's really what you get here is, you know, telling your own story. And you have that with the David Strathairn character who, you know, has kind of reinvented himself a few times. Basically, he was yeah. sort of the the hero, kind of the John Sales type, uh, you know, a high school jock, essentially. But he w- had a beautiful jump shot and was really great. And then he had a tragedy strike and um, some people were killed. And then what happened to him? He, he was never the same since. And how do you outrun that? What do you do? And also just people that don't fit in with... Um, ordinary society or um, maybe are looked down upon or cast out like we have two um, lesbian characters who are uh, hiring the Strathairn character they're kind of uh, entertaining women that we meet early on but they're fully three-dimensional sales characters and yeah and you mentioned uh, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio who's so good she does her own singing and I thought she had a wonderful voice too yeah yeah i mean it's just again you know that that kind of interconnected web of of characters and just um you know the the fact that i mean the, obviously the title has kind of a yes i don't know quadruple well but also kind of like a quadruple action to yes. it because you you literally have all these characters that you meet in the first half of the movie are in some kind of limbo really yep um you know they're they're you know emotionally spiritually and otherwise in some some sort of limbo and then you know even the i mean the audience is kind of in in i think some sort of some sort of limbo so um it's yeah i mean it's a it's incredible i mean it's um incredible what he does in this movie and i love the what you're talking about the diary um that that she finds and eventually you know it's revealed that she's just kind of you know mm-hmm. tell you know um, making it up making yep. it up you know and and there's almost nothing i love more in, in stories than than when you know you you have a character who's kind of relying on on telling stories as a form of survival and yes. you know, i think there that really that's really a beautiful element of that that sequence in the um in the movie that you have you know not only her but but the other characters also kind of relying on what's going to happen next in this tale she's telling yes and uh like the mother you brought up the whole people pay a fortune for this yeah like the stories you have to tell yourself just to keep going when uh so much is going wrong yeah yeah and also kind of, again, you know, like like some of these other movies, kind of edges up against being a crime movie in a lot of ways, yes. you know. Yeah, Especially there's thriller obvious, elements, but... Yeah, that second half, you know, it, it, uh, it really um, builds itself in that way, but is never, you know, is never predictable, is never formulaic, always kind of goes in a a little bit of a different direction than you think it's probably gonna gonna go. I mean, this is not a movie that you could really, you know, without knowing anything about it, sit down and think you have an idea of where yeah, it's gonna you, go or what really it's gonna don't. do. Um, so 
It, no, it's, it's, it's like it's yeah, the art house companion version of uh, the River Wild, also starring David Cairn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. the thriller on the water, and there's there's a thriller yeah. element on the water here, but. You know what, Sir Theron isn't like setting off smoke signals. Well, he does, but you know, or, or jumping over logs and setting up traps and trying to kill Kevin Bacon. It's it's a different thing. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's yeah, it's. I don't know. I feel like every time I watch it, it kind of moves up my list of just yes. favorites from '99 and all-time favorites. It's um, yeah, it's, actually, it's one of his best. I don't know. Maybe it may be my favorite sales movie. I don't know. I was going to say that. Yeah, I was I was kind of an eight men out person when I went into this. And now I'm like, maybe it's limpo. I don't know. One yeah. of the two. Yeah, it's too hard to know for sure. But it's a brilliant film. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, well, we spoiled some stuff. Uh, but if it's been a while, you know, p- pick it up. I think it's on Tubi. You mentioned yeah. Yeah, yeah, so city, a, city, a bunch of these are city of hope is yeah. out, a couple of places. So they're, they're, you know, a little easier to see than they've been for a while. Yeah. Well, I know that's all the ones we had time for. Obviously we referenced many others along the way, but are there any specific ones you want to make sure we give a shout out to at the end or his books or anything sales related or sales like? other filmmakers that you do want to recommend that you think would appeal to the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love, you know, I love so many of his movies that we didn't get to. And we, like you said, we, we kind of talked about some of them. Um, Brother from another planet is great. It's one of my favorites. Passion, yeah. Passion fish is and secret of Roninish are, are great. Mm-hmm. Um, I love both of those movies. Um, you know, he, he's not as kind of prolific in the in the aughts and the 2010s as he as he was in the 80s and 90s which is part of the reason why i think we called this episode sales in the 80s and 90s but there's some stuff that's really you know there's i don't want to say that they're they're not as good um some of those movies that follow there are really interesting good movies and you know that he yeah, that he makes and, and like, babies was good yeah yeah. I, I really, I mean, if I if I had to recommend two from his kind of later period, I, I really love Sunshine State, and yes. I really, really love Go for Sisters, which is the I think the last movie that he that he made. Um, I need to see that one. Okay, came out in 2013. Um, that you know that was really you know one of my favorite movies of that year, and um, just kind of classic felt like a classic sales movie and I, I really had hoped it would kind of usher in a wave of more sales movies but it hasn't um you know he hasn't done anything since then i think he's you know worked on some some tv stuff the alienist or something but he hasn't made another film um since then um book wise yeah I, I really i haven't read it i haven't read all of his fiction he's got a couple of novels and a story collection and um, but Union Dues is great, and uh, A Moment in the Sun, this big, really massive novel he put out in like I don't know 2011 or 12 from McSweeney's. That's really good, and and more recently he put out a novel called Yellow Earth about the Dakota oil boom of the the late aughts, early 2010s. Um, that's really good. So. Uh, definitely definitely recommend that stuff i mean the one the the kind of one thing of his that i 
never seen that I really want to see is uh, that TV show, Shannon's Deal, he did kind of in, in the yeah, middle of... I would be curious about that one myself. Yep. I think it was only a season, but it's right in the midst of all this stuff we're talking about. It's like post post Eight Men Out, pre-City of Hope, I think, or some somewhere in there. Um, so I'd be really interested to see that. I've never been able to find that. And there's films of his I haven't revisited in a while. I mean, his other 90s movie is... Um, Men with guns. I haven't seen that in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Baby It's You, we talked about. I love, love Baby It's You. He wrote the script for Alligator, which I, which is great. And, you know, he, he wrote the script for Joe Dante's uh, The Howling and, and Piranha. So his screenplay work is always really interesting. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Again, I think, I, I do think his influence, I don't know if his influence to me has shown up so much in in films as it has in TV stuff. But I, I was thinking today as I rewatched, or yesterday as I rewatched. No, maybe I was thinking it today. I, yeah, because I was rewatching Sunshine State today. Um, as I rewatched that, I was thinking, have you, did, did you see this movie that came out a couple of years ago called A Bread Factory? No. Um, by uh, Patrick Lang, I think is the director's okay, name. No. Um, Tyne Daly's in it and Janine Garofalo. It's got a really random, wonderful cast. It's two parts. It's like there's Bread Factory Part One and Bread Factory Part Two. That, you know, of recent stuff, that that strikes me as kind of sales-like. Or, you know, a lot of the things that I love about sales, I think I loved about the Bread Factory movie. So that would be a a movie, if you like John Sales, I think, or two movies, I should say, that, that would be worth checking out sounds good well bill i want to thank you so much for doing this it's always such a pleasure to talk about movies with you you're gonna to have to come back i know we have a few other ideas that i've jotted down over time uh bill and i come up with a lot of ideas um yeah. <laughs> quite frequently so you know he'll be back uh in season four and i can't wait for that so thank you so much for doing this yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was, as always, wonderful to to talk to you, and glad we got to rewatch some of these movies and read these books and talk yeah. about. You know, I, I mean, I, I really John Sales is one of my you know artistic heroes. I think so. This was just a lot of fun to revisit this stuff and get to talk to you about. Yes, of course. Thank you again. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. 
Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.